0: now for raising the bar greater rva's premier law talk radio show call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366 804-454-1366
1: Good morning and welcome to Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's Law Talk Radio Show. This is Colleen Quinn of Lock and Quinn, uh, your host of today's show. Raising the Bar Legal Talk Radio Show brings an exciting and varied array of legal topics to listeners throughout Central Virginia and especially in the greater Richmond area. At least once per week at 9 a.m. on Wednesdays, the one-hour show features true life stories and cases, legal tips, and information from experts and specialists. The law touches nearly every aspect of daily life, and this show brings both humorous and entertaining stories, along with some more sobering stories and helpful tips, including tips on access to legal services, something that not everyone can afford. Last week, we did Access to Justice, focusing on uh, pro bono services and uh, getting legal services and good legal advice. You can view any of the Law Talk Radio shows on the Locke and Quinn Facebook page. Um, We also, next week, will be featuring divorce, support, and custody issues featuring my law partner, Richard Locke, and our senior associate, Shannon Otto. So tune in for next week's show at 9 a.m. But now let's turn to this week's show. This week, we're going to be focusing on understanding head injuries, The intersection and their intersection with the law. Head injuries occur in all different types of sports. And of course, now we're learning so much more with regard to how they uh, affect domestic violence or, or how they might actually cause some domestic violence situations. Um today's gonna be a really interesting show and with me is Ann McDowell, who's the executive director of the Brain Injury Association of Virginia. Good morning Ann.
2: Good morning, Colleen. It's McDonald.
1: McDonald, yes, I'm sorry. It's okay. I said McDowell, you know that's that's um it's it's the Irish in me. It's any <laughs> any mick, just <laughs> but <laughs> so um, at any rate if you want to call into the show today, remember to call 804-454-1366. So, Ann, uh, let's talk a little bit about um, what is the Brain Injury Association of Virginia?
2: The Brain Injury Association of Virginia is a statewide nonprofit focused on advocating and serving individuals who've been impacted by brain injury. We've been around for nearly 35 years. Next January wow. will be our 35th anniversary of the day we started, we started because parents were having kids survive terrible brain injuries and we had no system of care. We were just beginning to learn how to keep these people alive. And so BIAB was formed to answer questions and provide support to folks who were trying to figure this road out. And 35 years later, we know a great deal more. We provide information and referral. We do quite a bit of education. We advocate for public policy change and we try to raise public awareness.
1: Great. Um, so, Ann, tell us a little bit about what is your background and how did you get into this area?
2: Well, I'm an occupational therapist by training. I worked at Sheltering Arms Rehabilitation Hospital for 15 years working in brain injury rehabilitation. Um, I discovered it on my physical disabilities clinical field work at the VA hospital. So my very first exposure was brain injury and in veterans. And that was when I realized that this was probably where I needed to focus my career because it it just intrigued me so. And so I worked in rehabilitation for years as an occupational therapist. My, my primary job in the hospital was teaching individuals how to feed themselves, dress themselves, bathe, that sort of thing. Um, when we got into community-based settings, I got to do lots of fun stuff. I got to help them relearn how to cook and keep a house and manage their checkbook and drive a car and the things that create a life. And so it was very, very meaningful work. And about 15 years ago, I came to the Brain Injury Association of Virginia pretty much so I could just advocate on a larger scale for folks who have some really significant needs.
1: Wow, that's a really compelling area in which to work. So many folks are familiar with um, head injuries that happen from sports and particular so much emphasis on football, mm-hmm. which we'll talk about. But what are some of the many different ways in which head injuries or brain injuries can occur, not in the sports world?
2: Well, interestingly enough, over the last few years we've seen the number one cause of brain injury go from car accidents to falls. As the population ages, we see falls happening at a greater rate. I think two There are, you know, lots of recreational pursuits in which falls could happen. Um, Car accidents are certainly a way that individuals sustain brain injuries. You know, folks can have strokes. Folks can have um, arterial venous malformations or blood vessels in their brain that are malformed and, and suddenly give way. Folks can have a lack of oxygen because of a heart attack or a drowning or an electrocution. Folks can have an infection of the brain, and certainly individuals can have brain tumors. So we see lots and lots of different ways that the brain can be impacted.
1: So this is something that even though if you're really, really careful, you don't fall down, you're not in a motor vehicle accident, you're not engaged in any um, sports that might cause injury, um, a head injury or brain injury is really something that could happen to anybody, um, just given your luck or your unluckiness.
2: Yeah, you know, I think um one of the things I've said in the past is we're all sort of one banana peel away, you know, accidents happen every day even to people who are incredibly cautious and even if it's not something accident related, you know, it could be something that's been brewing in your brain for a very long time. I think the fact that that we're all susceptible is one of the things that causes us to have difficulty about recognizing the frequency of brain injury. And and how how at risk we all are.
1: So, what is the definition of a head injury or brain injury? Or we also hear traumatic brain injury. Um, can you kind of give us some idea of, of what what that mean, what those terms mean?
2: Yeah, well, you know, you can have a head injury without having a brain injury. Scalp wounds bleed like crazy, but you know that doesn't necessarily mean that you've had a brain injury if you you know cut your head against the corner of a cabinet, for example, like I did when I was four. Brain injuries, though, involve some sort of, uh, of issue with the organ itself. So there are brain injuries that certainly can happen in utero. Individuals who may abuse substances or chromosomal abnormalities or any number of things can happen to a child while the brain is still in utero. What we talk about with the Brain Injury Association are are those individuals that have had a period of normal development outside the womb, and then something happens. So they've been born, everything's okay, and then something happens. Brain injuries primarily happen in one of two ways. We sort of distinguish them as traumatic and non-traumatic. Traumatic would be those things that are involved in a car accident, a fall, an assault, that sort of thing. A blow or some sort of external force. The non-traumatic injuries are those things that can happen as a result of stroke or infection or, you know, diabetic coma. I had a couple of patients that had brain injuries as a result of that. Heart attack, you know, those things that sort of happen because of something that's going on internally in the body. And that's sort of how we make a distinction when we need to. Um, if you ask me, pretty much all brain injuries are traumatic. I don't know why we right. have to right. say traumatic and <laughs> non-traumatic. But. I think
1: traumatic as in terms of the, the, right. the trauma, <laughs> the external impact, versus traumatic as in terms of anybody um, or any family that mm-hmm. is assisting someone with a head injury is going to find it to be a very traumatic experience. Certainly. So we have a lot of different usages of that word, traumatic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I've also, um, I'm also familiar with there's, there's different distinctions at times between um, mild and severe. Mm-hmm. So can you talk a little bit about the spectrum of brain injury?
2: When an individual sustains a brain injury and EMS is activated, for example, or they go to the hospital, they may be um, rated on something called the Glasgow Coma Scale or GCS for short. And that's generally the tool that we use to sort of rate brain injuries. It's a 15-point scale, and you get a 3 for showing up alive in the ER. So, 3 to 7 is considered to be a very severe injury. Those individuals are having trouble following commands. They may only moan to a painful stimulus. Their eyes probably aren't open. A moderate injury is from 8 to 12. Those individuals may be able to follow command. They may be fuzzy. They may have had a brief loss of consciousness. Mild injuries are 13 to 15. Those individuals generally don't lose consciousness, are able to follow commands, but certainly have, are experiencing the effects of a concussion.
1: And attorneys like myself that do personal injury cases, um, we're very familiar with the Glasgow Coma Score because, of course, that's used by all Mm -hmm. the ambulance and rescue workers. It's a a scale that's used by everybody. Um, But what's interesting is that even with a mild traumatic brain injury, like from an auto accident, a person could still have um, a lot of long-term repercussions or or symptoms. So... um, Let's talk a little bit about what are some of the symptoms of, of of a brain injury, because there is also a pretty broad spectrum of symptoms uh, that occur, um, mm-hmm. w- at least from the cases I've seen and handled, and I know you working in mm-hmm. this field um, have seen even more.
2: Well, individuals who sustained a, a severe injury may have difficulty moving around. One side of the body could be impaired, paralyzed, just slow to move, very, very tight, They generally have trouble with their balance, so walking may be difficult, they may need to sit in a wheelchair, they have trouble thinking, they may have trouble eating, swallowing foods, those sort of things. As you move through the spectrum, things begin to change, and at the very mild end of the spectrum, I think that's where we have the most misunderstanding about brain injury, and the effect of multiple concussions. So, When someone sustains a concussion, that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to lose consciousness. So we need to understand that folks can look perfectly normal. Um, I've talked to a number of folks. There was a football player I talked to a couple of years ago. He said after he got hit and he opened his eyes that the sky was orange. So, you know, you may have some visual sort of symptoms. You may have a headache. You may have some balance problems, some intermittent dizziness, a woman that I know couldn't turn her head for six months without setting off a wave of dizziness. So you, you've hit your head or you've, you know, jarred it enough that you know something's just not right. You're not thinking as clearly or as quickly. You feel like you're sort of wading through molasses. Those may be indications that perhaps a further workup is needed.
1: You know, you mentioned the balance issues and I've handled a number of cases um, where folks have had a brain injury and then they have those balance issues and they're literally, you know, holding the, their hand against the wall or they're mm-hmm. using a cane. And, and the problem is, is that sometimes with those balance issues, then they will have falls, which will then further compound the, the brain injury, which, um, w- which some folks don't realize that the, the falls then are actually a result of having incurred the brain injury in the, in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, so what, um, does a person actually have to hit their head to have a brain injury?
2: Um, no, you know, several years ago, there was a study to look at whether or not roller coasters might cause brain injury. And there really wasn't any conclusive evidence there. But, you know, when someone is in a car accident, their head may just be bobbled severely enough and never hit anything to create damage to the inside of the brain. You know, the brain sits inside the skull in this little sort of bath of fluid, and that's really all the protection that it has. And so, because that substance is fluid, it moves around. So, the brain can move around slightly inside the skull without ever hitting anything and sustain damage.
1: Yeah, and then working with uh, Dr. Greg Oshanik, who you know well, he actually has one of those brain models that shows the the gray mm-hmm. jelly mass mm-hmm. of the brain, and then describes in a whiplash injury uh, the coup contra coup uh, uh, experience, where you know the, that jelly mass basically uh, goes forward and hits the front part of the skull, and then that jelly mass of our brain goes backward mm-hmm. and hits the back part of the skull, and basically is shearing axons in the in the brain um, in that process. So in that whiplash injury, the person doesn't necessarily have to even hit their head on, you know, the back of their seat or anything. It's just that forward, back, coup, contra-coup motion that you're actually having your brain impact with a hard object that is the front of the skull and then a hard object the back of the skull Um, and and having an actual model to look at um, and watch it and watch that kind of gelatin mass of our brain is one of the best things um, I've seen in terms of trying to explain to folks what's going on when somebody has a head injury, especially one that doesn't actually have an impact involved.
2: You know, it it, it never ceases to amaze me. I mean, the brain truly is about the consistency of congealed oatmeal. You know, you could, pardon me, put your finger through (laughs) it with no effort at all. I've held one in my hands. And to think that this thing has created everything that we're sort of, and and what we know and how we communicate to each other, it's quite fascinating. How How is it that the brain works? You know, I've heard it said that you bring the brain you have to the accident. Well, perhaps that's true. I think individuals who have higher education are more likely to have a stronger recovery. However, um, a woman that I know who's a terrific advocate for individuals with brain injuries, she was a, an economist, a PhD, Duke-trained economist working at the World Bank, in D.C., and she was rear-ended in a minor car accident. She sustained a minor or a uh, mild traumatic brain injury, and has never been able to go back to that job.
1: Wow! You know, I've seen, especially an older woman that multitask, um, and that, and sometimes there are higher functioning that they actually have a little bit more difficulty mm-hmm. um, because of the multitasking. It's almost as if you know you have a dresser drawer. And uh, women in particular tend to like have 10 drawers open at once and and no offense to men, but they sometimes have a more linear mindset, you know, and they only have one or two drawers open. And so when you have that head injury and and you now have this sense of disorganization um, and also some memory issues, you suddenly having the 10 drawers open, it just doesn't work anymore,
2: you know? Well, true. And there's been some really interesting studies over the years, I haven't kept up with lately, about, you know, the effect of estrogen. What what difference, the actual hormones that we have and how that impacts our own response to injury, brain injury and recovery?
1: And we haven't talked about emotional ability, but, right. but that's a huge aspect of head, of brain injuries, um, is the emotional component um, that, that people... Do with a a brain injury do become um, a a little bit more emotional. The mood swings, um, the irrationality um, becomes more enhanced.
2: I was doing a presentation, this was years ago, it was our first outreach campaign to persons that work in domestic violence shelters. And we recognize that there are a lot of people out there who are the victims of domestic violence who are sustaining multiple repeated concussions, and it's impacting their daily life. And my very first presentation, I could see light bulbs going off in the audience. You know, if if you're wondering why your folks can't seem to get it together, are missing appointments, make bad decisions, go back to the you know individual that beat them, all, you know, cry a lot, maybe, oh, I don't know, maybe it's because they have a brain injury. And so this campaign has taken off. I testified a couple of weeks ago at a domestic violence briefing on Capitol Hill. Wow. You know, states are doing domestic violence outreach. And, you know, you have to wonder... Uh, with recent news about the link of domestic violence in the past of many of these individuals who've committed mass shootings, maybe there's something there. Wayne Gordon, who's a researcher at Mount Sinai, said years ago that he thought brain injury was the the hidden cause of social failure. And, and, you know, the rate of brain injury is higher in the homeless. It's higher in the justice involved. It's higher among uh, individuals who commit violent acts you just sort of have to wonder.
1: You know, I mean, that's an interesting point, Anne, because we don't think about the person that has been battered as part of the domestic violence incurring those head injuries. Um, but in most batterings, um, there is a head injury or multiple head injuries that are implicated. Mm-hmm. I had one um, young lady... Um, who, uh, her boyfriend came home and he, he was, uh, had abused substances and he just repeatedly took her head and pounded it into the floor, um, which then when you're trying to work with that type of client... it compounds things because they have memory issues. And, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of even making appointments, as you mentioned, um, it becomes harder to help somebody that has endured that sort of trauma.
2: Or talking to the police, you know, when they can't remember things very well, and their story sort of begins to change, they become an unreliable witness. You know, I think one of our uh, one of our desires at VIAV is to do an outreach campaign to first responders about brain injury and what it looks like, and why you might get different stories, and you know, just sort of understanding how to respond to individuals.
1: Well, it's really a hidden injury because mm-hmm. you, you know, unless as you mentioned before, you know, there's there's bleeding on the brain or, or bleeding on the on the head. If there's bleeding on the brain, we can't see it, but on the head. Um, you know, it's it's inside the person. Right. And so it's very hard for folks to kind of understand what might be going on in that individual because you can't really see an immediate injury.
2: I run a, uh, well, BIAV runs a camp program that I've been involved with for 30 years. And, and um, you know, we'll be sitting down late at night in front of the campfire and individuals who are ambulatory, who may have driven themselves to camp, who might be able to work part-time have said to me, sometimes they wish they were in a wheelchair because then people would be more understanding. And I mean, that's to, to say you wish you were in a wheelchair. What, what must that life be like?
1: Yeah. And the interesting thing too, I've observed about brain injuries is that a lot of folks that have brain injuries also are cognizant of the fact that they have mm-hmm. the brain injury, which makes it very frustrating for them. I had one lady who um, actually, she was a, a, a medical record coder. So she had memorized two huge, large volumes of Ugh. medical coding, you know, and um, after her auto accident, she could no longer remember any of the codes. And we, and we see a lot of that and inability to work with numbers and mm-hmm. transposing numbers and just not being able to, to do checkbook, your checkbook anymore. Right. But she was so cognizant of her, her brain injury and she, she said it was so fa- frustrating because she would try to take care of her grandbaby and she would take um, the grandbaby's food and put it in the microwave and then she would overheat it and then she would put it in the um, in the freezer to cool it down and then she would forget about it. And then her grandbaby would say, Grandma, what about my food? And then she would forget where she had put it. Um, and then at, she also said that she would f- go to the laundry and she would forget whether she ran the laundry or she didn't run the laundry Um, and it was like semi-wet, but she wasn't sure. And so she said it was so frustrating because she was aware all the time of these little things that kept reminding her of her level of forgetfulness. And, And she could no longer do her job, unfortunately.
2: Yeah, I think that there are some things that are sort of amenable to compensatory strategies. That's one of the things that OTs love to do. We do these lists of exactly how you perform certain tasks. And so people will decide at some point, okay, I recognize I can't do this. I'm going to use this list. I hate it, but it will make it easier. Right. Versus some folks who just say no, and they continue to struggle. Everybody's got a right to choose their own path, but there are some things, particularly when you have a job that requires you to memorize two huge books of codes, there's no compensatory strategy that can fix that.
1: Right, right. And as an occupational therapist, I mean, you're well aware of some of the compensatory strategies mm-hmm. that are being taught to people, and one of which is just to kind of simplify your, your, your life, try to streamline things mm-hmm. as well. So um, one of the aspects that um, I'd like to pursue a little bit further um after we we take our break is the impulsivity of mm-hmm. um of folks that have brain injuries um because that uh, inability to regulate um and actually it, uh, it was interesting as I started to find in some of my cases, um, the, Im- the sexual impulsivity. Uh. And I think, I think you have a really interesting uh, story to tell about one of your camps um, that I would I'd love to share after the break. If you have any questions, please call in 804 454 1366. I'm talking to Ann McDowell, excuse me, McDonald, and I'm going to get that last name right, <laughs> of the Brain Injury Association of Virginia. Please join Ann and me after the break. Thanks
0: you've been listening to raising the bar greater richmond's premier law talk radio show call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366 804-454-1366 To raising the bar. Call into the show with your stories and questions at 804-454-1366.
1: 804-454-1366. We are back. Welcome back to uh raising the bar the law talk radio show today we're talking about um, understanding brain injury and with me is ann mcdonald without the d on the end like mcdonald's um and she's got her very uh very green irish shirt uh here as well um so we're with Colleen Quinn and Ann McDonald, That's with quite right. the Irish team this morning. So we're talking about brain injuries, and we were talking about some of the symptoms, and then some of the more unusual symptoms, which one of which is impulsivity, and of course, with any sort of impulsivity, and also inability to um, have boundaries. Um, one of the areas that um, folks don't always know about is sexual impulsivity. Mm-hmm. And I know that uh, you've you've uh, encountered that, especially in your camp program with the Brain Injury Association of Virginia. So uh, if you could share um, maybe uh, a story or two about um, some of the, the the sexual impulsivity areas you've seen
2: well, you know um the the frontal lobe which sits right above the eyes is the last lobe to develop in the brain it's sort of the last one to wire in and the frontal lobe is that part of our brain that helps us make good decisions helps us control impulses and so you know our brains don't normally wire in in a perfectly functioning brain until we're about 25 and and you know if you sort of doubt me I challenge you to go back and think about some of the stellar decisions that you made when you were 20 and how sex led some of those stellar decisions because you know we're learning how to work in the world how to walk in the world but the frontal lobe is really susceptible to injury so anger control can be difficult it's a part of impulsivity Uh, just checking your actions knowing when not to say something knowing when not to act a certain way So in individuals who've been injured at a fairly young age, as teenage boys or young 20-year-old boys, you know, they're automatically in that phase of life. They may be finding it difficult to find a girlfriend, and they've had damage to the frontal lobe, the part of the brain that tells them to act like a gentleman and not do something stupid. Well, you know. So, yeah, we've had a number of instances at camp where folks have come, Um, thinking that, you know, this might be the place that they get lucky. Um, It's a two-week program. We do one week, two one-week sessions, and then it's residential. So, you know, we have campers there overnight for six days. We have a lot of staff, and we have the campers and the staff understand that we have a couple of basic rules. Even if you are of age and you do not have a legal guardian, you— that's just not something that happens at camp. Number one rule is we don't touch anything that's not normally covered by a bathing suit. (laughs) And number two is we don't leave camp with any more campers than we showed up with. There you go. (laughs) I try to keep the rules pretty simple. So yeah, we had one year, we had one young man show up with enough condoms for the entire camp to have sex practically 24 hours a day. (laughs) It was really incredible. And he was absolutely looking for opportunities to use them, but we were on top of things. We did have a young girl come one time um, and she was really, um, she had, I think, as part of her injury, uh, an extreme case of sexual promiscuity. So she required 24-hour one-to-one because we did at one point turn our back and she. Uh, we ended up finding her in the walk-in freezer with some young man uh, in full embrace, you know, n- not touching anything that wasn't covered by a bathing suit, but literally happened like that. So, yeah, we have to keep our eyes on it. And we need to, you know, remind these young men that... Um, um, if if this didn't work for you before, it's probably not going to work for you now. Right, right. So I'm, I'm going to dub you um, <laughs> Ann McDonald's sex police woman. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> You've got several different roles I as the executive I director. Do. So we've got a call from Katie. Katie, you're on the air? Hi, yes. Um, so I've been listening to um,
2: sort of what you guys have been saying this morning, and it seems like a lot—
1: of the ways that brain injury
2: manifests can be
1: really subtle Um just personality changes. So, mm-hmm. I mean, how how do you know if you might need treatment for something like this? It seems like you could be walking through life with a brain injury and not even know it, or your spouse could, or someone you you know, know or love. So what, I mean, what sort of things do you need to be on the lookout for? That's an excellent question, Katie. Um, and it's actually one I, I um, wanted to make sure we hit upon today. So that's a wonderful question. Um, because actually we have a number of first responders who oftentimes don't recognize that somebody has a head injury. Um, and I, I know that um, Anne had mentioned earlier training first responders in particular. So let's let's talk a little bit about that, how head injuries are missed and not detected. Um, and the, the frequency with which that happens and how um, maybe that can um, be done a little bit better.
2: Well, I think that you know raising awareness of the issue and perhaps um, looking at some of the concussion protocols that are being used by sports teams, having first responders use a, zero, a similar kind of protocol to find out if they think someone has a has sustained a concussion. Um, you know, I think part of what Katie was trying to get at was, you know, how do you know if if there's been a personality change? Years. Mild brain injuries are missed all the time. I think there are a lot of people, to borrow your words, Katie, that are walking around with it that don't know. Um, Years ago, when we first entered Iraq and we were talking about brain injury being the signature wound of the the war, my husband made the comment to me that a lot of guys who go into the military probably already have brain injuries because they played football. Wow. So... I do think a lot of people are walking around. I think that if you are uh, an individual that, you know, has figured out a way to sort of manage your symptoms, then there's probably nothing more that you need. If you find that, you know, you've had a a fall or a car accident or, um, you know, hit your head hard and, and you notice something different then... Um, what you probably should do is mention it first to your primary care physician and, and ask them you know, what their level of familiarity treating concussion is or post-concussive syndrome. There are some folks that need to get diagnosed years later. And at that point, what we generally do is refer them to an individual uh, profession called neuropsychology. These folks are trained to administer very specific tests and can look back and see, you know, how's your problem solving stack up against people of a similar age and similar education? How does your impulse control? And they may be able to track back um, someone. But if you can think back to a time when you definitely had your bell rung or you had a brain infection or a brain tumor and you think that there may be something there, you could certainly have that looked into as well.
1: Yeah, you know, on that same score, um, Katie, thank you so much for that question. Did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah no, that that's really helpful. Thank you. Thank you for calling in. Mm-hmm. Remember, you can call into the show with any questions at 804-454-1366. Um, and in talking about uh, trying to diagnose head injuries or folks that are walking around not even knowing they have them, um, you know, I, I had a client uh, come in recently who, um, we knew she had a head injury, but it, the... the the extent of it mm-hmm. um, really wasn't apparent until she finally got to a really good professional. Um, and the just her finding out and having the confirmation that she wasn't going crazy, she wasn't going insane, was very healthy for her. Um, but she also was actually diagnosed also with PTSD as, as a component mm-hmm. of the head injury um, because she had been struggling with it and also just basically she was still reliving the accident and then how it had impacted her. Um, so a lot of times too, we don't always not only is the head injury or the brain injury not detected, but there might be some other compounding emotional you know mental health uh, issues going on as well. Um, you know when we talk about a football, um, there's been so much information in the press about, um, you know, how football can cause head injuries. We've got the no targeting rule in college football now. Um, we've got the, Ar- the Richmond Times-Dispatch running a series on, um, you know, brain injuries and how we can prevent those. Uh, we've got Ar- Aaron Hernandez, the football player for mm-hmm. the, the New England Patriots, who was convicted of murder and then recently committed suicide. And then um, when they when they basically did the brain scans, they showed the, um, the chronic traumatic encephalitis encephalopathy, if I get that word, CTE for short. Um, and But we don't really talk about how brain injuries can happen in other sports besides football. Um, so in your experience, Anne, in what other sports uh, do you commonly or have you seen um, brain injuries occur?
2: Um, I think pretty commonly in soccer. It's not so much from the heading of the ball. It's from those on-field collisions when people run into each other and then they fall down. So I'm, I've been aware, particularly as soccer has become a sport that's taken over the country and, and you know, youth leagues and travel leagues, and it's become a very competitive sport. Um, and I've seen it equally in in guys and girls. I do think Young women have a little longer recovery period. It's just sort of been my experience. I don't know that I can prove that, but just anecdotally, that's what my gut is telling me. Um, We've seen individuals sustain brain injuries uh, in volleyball because a fall is very common there, particularly when sweaty people land on the floor and the floor is wet. Uh, cheerleading, interestingly enough, is a frequent cause of brain injury. You know, they're doing lots more tricks and uh, people fall and land and hit their head. We actually had a spokesman years ago for the Brain Injury Association of America, who was a former cheerleader. Um, So just about any sport, you know, baseball, sometimes they wear batting helmets. You know, the thing about helmets, so the batting helmets, you're most likely to be hit by a pitch when you're standing at the plate. And so those helmets are good for that sort of thing. It's a, it's a protective sort of shell. But helmets in football, um, I think, give this uh, uh, impression of greater safety than they provide because the jarring effect of those tackles does not stop the rain from sloshing around in the skull. Right. So, you know, a helmet might protect you from something hitting your head, but not necessarily your head hitting something.
1: That that gray
2: oatmeal mass that we talked mm-hmm, about before mm-hmm. is still impacting um, inside the skull. You know, you reminded me, Colleen, you, you might have to scroll down and maybe we'll repost it. But on our Facebook page, we have a, a GIF or a GIF or whatever that, that shows that sort of jelly-like mass that you were talking about Dr. O'Shannik having. So, you know, we'll repost it so it's up top at the page. But you should take a look at that because, ew.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's amazing how squishy the brain really is. <laughs> So, um, going back to um some of the the cases where we're seeing a correlation between somebody with a head injury and then causing the domestic violence. um we talked about the person that had been battered and had the head injuries. But going back to to that, um in the Aaron Hernandez case, um, you know, the football player for the New England Patriots um is actually an interesting um case. it's It's somewhat controversial. Um, because there's an issue of whether he had some violent tendencies before he had the the brain disease. But then there's a question of some people just might, if they do have violent or aggressive tendencies, might be more susceptible to then engaging in domestic violence if they have the brain disease. So I just kind of wanted to have you comment on on your observations in in this whole new awareness that we're seeing um, on – folks that are the batterers um, that have issues or had previous um, issues with head injuries.
2: I think in some of these cases, it sort of feels like the dog chasing the tail, you know, which came first sort of thing. So I'm not sure. I think that um, individuals who have impulse control issues have anger management issues. They sort of go hand in hand. And there could be any number of reasons for an impulse control problem. It could be that There was something wrong with the basic wiring that created that. It could be that there was some sort of, you know, prenatal abuse. It could be that as a kid, he rough and tumbled a lot and he fell and he rode a skateboard and he fell a couple of times. And and the effect of multiple jars to the brain created an area or susceptibility to further problems with impulse control and anger management. So I think that you know I'm not exactly sure where it started for Aaron Hernandez, but I know that it started long before he started playing football, and there was probably something at the cellular level, you know. Um,
1: and then it, it could not have helped to have taken hit after hit yeah. in, in football, mm-hmm. you know. And and we focus um, so much um, on uh, the football, but as you mentioned, there's so many other sports, mm-hmm. um, and and in particular. Uh, there hasn't been much focus on soccer, which is really taking over um, because almost any kid can go out and and kick a ball.
2: I think it's become the go-to sport for folks that are pulling their kids out of football. Right, right. You know, it's very similar. Rugby is also a sport, I think, that, you know, the parents aren't, but individuals are looking at as a sort of an alternative to football because they don't tackle, Right. you know, in the same way. Yes, they don't wear helmets, but they also don't tackle. Yeah, you know, you could fall and still hit your head on the ground, but no one's using their head as a spear because of that, in, you know, supposed invincibility of the helmet. Right, right. You know.
1: So let's talk a little bit about um, the intersection of brain injuries and the law. Of course, for criminal attorneys, um, understanding the head injury and, and uh, having that as a possible defense for their clients. Um, but for those of us that are in the area of personal injury, um why is it important for lawyers that are handling brain injury cases to, to really understand the issues?
2: Well, we know of a lot of individuals who sustained their brain injury when they were 20 and 30, who went home and lived with mom and dad because they're not able to live on their own. And their parents are aging, and so what's going to happen to these individuals when their parents are no longer able to care for them. So the long-term and the lifelong consequences, not every case where an individual sustains a brain injury is one that's appropriate for legal intervention. But for those that are taking the really long view about the types of supports and services that an individual needs, in the state of Virginia right now, there are so few options for long-term living for someone with a brain injury that even if you guys were successful in getting larger settlements for these folks, you might very well end up having to ship them out of state to receive that care. So that's one thing we could use your help for. Help us get better settlements for these folks and help us create a system that serves them better over the length of their life.
1: And, th- and that's so important and in many of these cases, you know, we employ a life care planner. Yeah, and, love them. Right, and and really try to show just how expensive the care is going to be down the road. Um, but what's even more unfortunate are the brain injury cases, which were not caused by an accident where you can get a recovery. Um, and, and those have large implications for estate planning mm-hmm. um, and making sure that somebody um, has a, um, a guardianship or a conservatorship set up and mm-hmm. that the um, the parents who are taking care of that individual have adequate estate planning in place. Um, the other thing that I've, I've realized in working with folks with brain injuries is um, you you really have to, understand the brain injury in order to work with the client, including you know, doing those constant reminders, almost like the doctor's office, mm-hmm. you know, texting and emailing and calling in the morning, by the way, your appointment is this afternoon. I mean one of my paralegals is, is, is very astute and very good at kind of, mm-hmm. of, of knowing with our brain injured clients that we're gonna need to do a lot more hand holding right. with the client. Um, also When uh, Katie called in and and asked about the the injuries that kind of go undetected, what I've noticed is that it's um, oftentimes the spouse or the person that's really close to the person that actually is sometimes the one Mm -hmm. that picks up on the head injury because people will say, this is not the woman I married or this is not the man that I married. Um, This is a different person.
2: Interestingly enough, years ago, one of the employees of the Brain Injury Association of Virginia was involved in a uh, accident on 295 right outside of Mechanicsville. Her car was hit by a tractor trailer. She was taken to MCV, which is a level one trauma hospital, and she was treated for the verte- vertebral fractures that she had. But even they missed the brain injury. So employee of the Brain Injury Association of Virginia sustains a mild injury where she has vertebral fractures. They're missed at MCV. She's discharged home and... About ten days later when she really was messing up her medications, her husband was the one who said I'm not sure we're still dealing with a neck here. Right. And and this was somebody who worked for BIAV. So that that sort of speaks a little bit to, you know, how difficult it can be to thread out some of these things. Particularly in an acute phase when somebody's hurting and fuzzy and Right, because oftentimes you have the neck pain and right, you have the back right, pain right. and you have the other pains
1: going on. Um, I've had folks in my office and thank goodness I've had the spouse or the partner sit in um, because I'll start asking questions, and I'm not a doctor, but I know enough about brain injury mm-hmm. to ask, you know, are you experiencing this, are you experiencing that? And, and they'll sit there and go, oh, well, I'm not really sure. But the spouse will be like, yes, 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 she's got, he or he has that. Mm-hmm, and, and, mm-hmm. and all of those different things, um, you know, uh, basically has been more confused and um, has been crying all the time, et cetera. And so we also have those folks that don't seem to want to acknowledge either that they're experiencing mm-hmm. some of those symptoms, yeah. which can be scary, you know. In um, terms of trying these cases, uh, again, it goes back to the wheelchair. You almost you almost wish the client was in a wheelchair because a jury can't see, um, they, they can't see the injury, and so um, so many times in the in these cases, one, it's good to have good exhibits, you know, like uh, like Dr. Oceanic's brain, you mm-hmm. know, um, that that shows that, but two, uh, we pretty much end up trying the case through the spouse or the partner and the person at work that's sure. noticed, or the or the boss or the supervisor, because they're really the ones that can attest to
2: you know to the symptoms. It, I found it fascinating in the case that I was talking about earlier about the BIAV employee. I was called in. Uh, during the settlement process and was told that I was, in fact, a devastating witness for.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're quite, you know, you've got, you're quite the observer, so. um Well,
2: and it, it was really weird because I think that was the first time, honestly, that I had the opportunity to know someone well before their injury and know them well after. Because most of the time I come in contact with people after their injury. Right. So but you don't have a baseline. I, I don't. And so in very few cases where I've had the opportunity to to know someone before and know them after and and I sure I, I know I'm looking for it because that's what I'm trained to do. And I can spot very subtle changes. It used to drive my mother crazy um, when I would see changes in her cognitive level It was a result of uh, her heart attack, you know. But it's it's there's a difference and you can see it, you know, in individuals and in maybe not all cases at not all times. But, you know, in these in these two cases I'm thinking of, there was a very obvious difference and no one would have known it from the outside.
1: Right. So it's really that person that's intimately involved, mm-hmm. um, that at least is with that person on a, if not daily, then weekly basis mm-hmm. um, that has known them prior to the accident and then knows them after the accident. That is really the oftentimes the best witness in terms of being able to say something has mm-hmm. changed mm-hmm. about this person and here's how they were and here's how they are now. Um, we had a case up in Fairfax County and it was a a, a missed case, of a minor impact type case. Um, and so there wasn't much damage to the vehicle. But thank goodness the uh, sister and the husband and the employer all had observed what had occurred to my to my client. Um, and the, the other attorney said uh, he would... He would uh, bet his bar license if we got a decent verdict, and I had, got the pleasure of calling him up after, or actually right after we got the verdict. I said, do you, do "You want to give me your, your bar license?" <laughs>
0: so. I have a quick question for you, Anne. Um, all the all the talk about uh, this uh, the brain being mush and being encased in uh, in fluid and just kind of rattling around. I'll probably be sitting here for the the next week thinking of every <laughs> everything that has ever happened in my head. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but there is something you, I didn't uh, hear you. Mentioned You were talking about traumatic and non-traumatic, which is still traumatic, and you, you put the, uh, the things uh, like stroke uh, in the non-traumatic category, and then, of course, you know, football injuries and the traumatic. Um, how about brain surgery? How, how does that uh, – um, does that qualify as a brain injury? That's a great question, Asher.
2: (laughs) Well, you know, that that really is a good question, and I'm sure we have a clean answer on that. You know, when someone has has to have some sort of craniotomy, which is the technical term for brain surgery, a piece of the skull comes off, and you get in there and you muckle around, it's sort of hard to believe that there wouldn't be some sort of change. But, you know, part of that depends on how, and I I don't know how to say it, how clean it is. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone... Uh, is having surgery for a very targeted tumor, for example. Surgeons are very skilled at going in there and messing up as little as possible. Uh, I think we've all seen shows where someone is operated on while they're sort of still awake. Right. So doctors can go in there and do these sorts of things. I think for those individuals, the likelihood of long term impacts are probably minimal.
0: Okay. Um, you so know, so. If everything so, goes right then, right, then no.
2: That's that's or what or I would like to think. Marginal, yeah. marginal. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay.
1: But, you know, the the fact that they have to go in to begin with, there's some injury they're trying to fix. There's something. Right, which would be, fall into the Mm non-traumatic category. Mm -hmm. Um, You would think by definition of cutting on the brain or going in, or at least cutting the skull and going into the brain, that that would be trauma, um, an external impact. Um, But if they're fixing it, um, as opposed to doing further injury, um, then perhaps that's not traumatic, but it's 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 very mushy, um, kind of like the brain itself. Mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm. And when you think about it, you know the brain. When you when you fall or when you're a car accident, your brain jostles around. The whole brain is damaged. You know when you have a stroke, there's one blood vessel in your brain that creates some problems. If you have um, uh, an anoxic injury, that affects the whole brain in a different way. If someone is shot, for example, there's a very clean path. Through the brain, so the damage is somewhat, as we call, localized or focal, uh, much more so than a fall. But the way that that brain responds is different than the way someone who has had a heart attack responds to car accidents. One of the things that is so so fascinating about the brain, we're going un- right. to understand so much more about black holes and life on other planets before we really understand even consciousness.
1: Right, and also the diagnostic imaging is still constantly developing. I mean, there are images that will show a brain bleed, etc., mm-hmm. um, but there the imaging continues to... Uh, develop and become more sophisticated. So over time, hopefully, we will learn more about the mysteries um, of of the brain and the injuries that occur. Mm-hmm. Thank you for joining us today with Anne McDonald, uh, talking about brain injuries. Anne is the executive director of the Brain Injury Association of Virginia. This is Colleen Quinn of Locke and Quinn. Please join my law partner, Richard Locke, next week when he will be talking about divorce, support, and custody issues, something we want nobody to have to face, but unfortunately many people do. Thank you.